Well, Pathway, good morning to church. I'm glad you guys are all with us today. I want to open up this morning with a story, and it's a story of a modern-day hero. And the reason I want to tell you this story is because this story, I think, uh, relates to the hero that we're going to come upon in the bigger story in the Bible today. This modern-day hero is somebody whose story very much reflects the person that we're going to be reading about. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about a guy that some of you have a lot of recollection of and some of you haven't been taught much about. His name is Nelson Mandela. And Nelson Mandela's story is going to model that in many ways of Joseph in the Bible, who I get to teach you about this morning. Nelson Mandela uh, came up in a, in a system of absolute racial brokenness in the country of South Africa many years ago. And so if you want to try to understand who Nelson Mandela was, he is to South Africa in many ways what Martin Luther King Jr. is to us here in the United States. He is the key figure that God used to break a system, a, a, a profoundly racist system that was happening at a structural level in the nation of South Africa. South Africa had a dynamic where there was a, a, a white minority. The, the, the white Africans were in the significant minority in the country, but they controlled the vast majority of the wealth and the power in the country. And so the whites ended up taking over the government in 1948. And what they did is they began to pass laws that made it impossible for black Africans to thrive. So they started passing laws that stripped black Africans of their ability to vote. They passed laws that ended up um, seizing their property and moving the black Africans into common, less desirable areas of the country and being segregated from the whites. And this whole system was called apartheid in South Africa. Nelson Mandela came up through that system. And as a young man, he got himself in, involved in trying to fight back against the system. And at one point in the 1960s, he got involved in an armed resistance. And so because he had taken up arms, he ended up getting arrested. Now, Nelson Mandela probably, even though he was fighting a righteous fight and a good fight, he did it in the wrong way. And so he probably deserved some jail time for what he had done. But what the white government did is they identified him as an enemy of the state and they sentenced him to life in prison. Life in prison for having taken up arms in a resistance. And what ended up happening is over the next 27 years, Nelson Mandela spent the next nearly three decades of his life in a prison cell. He only got to visit a couple people a year, only got a couple people a year to got to come and see him. He only got to send out two letters a year to the outside world. But here's what's kind of incredible about his story. Three, nearly three decades of his life got taken away from him, but God did something special with those three decades. So one thing that God did is God refined his heart and changed him and transformed his life in that prison cell. But the other thing that happened is that God allowed him to become the most famous political prisoner in the world. So the world took notice of Nelson's story. And what happened is, is world governments began to put pressure on the South African government to, to release Nelson Mandela and not in, enact his, his lifetime prison sentence. And so that's why after 27 years, in the early 1990s, he was released from prison and did not have to serve out the rest of his days in prison. When he got out of prison, here's what happened to him. He was so worldwide famous because of his story, a story that he had no control over. God brought fame to him for a purpose. He was so worldwide known that the black Congress, so you had, you had two governments operating at the same time in South Africa, the white government that really controlled everything, and then, the, and then what was called the black Congress, he immediately got elected as the president of the black Congress, 
When he gets elected as the, as the president, he, 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 he has an opportunity, if he wants to, to use the political power that he now has to try to retaliate against his enemies. He chooses the path of forgiveness and reconciliation against his enemies. Chooses not to use his political power to try to go after the people who hurt him. And instead pursues reconciliation. And because of it, in 1993, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts. A year later, 1994, Nelson Mandela became the first black elected president of the entire nation of South Africa. He, he was elected not just over the black Congress, but also over the white government. And Nelson Mandela is the figure who was responsible for tearing down the system of apartheid in South Africa. It's an amazing story. He is a modern day hero. And the reason I wanted to tell you his story is because it so aligns with what we see today in Scripture. His story has so much overlap to the story of Joseph in the Bible. And I'm going to show you some of the parallels as we go through this story together. Today we're on week number three of this series that we're calling The Story in the Beginning. And remember what I taught you is that we are going to go through the whole Bible in, in 2024. You're going to get all the major stories of Scripture and if you, if you attend all these messages, you're going to be able to put all the pieces together of, of, of the flow of the Bible and what the, what the master grand narrative of it all is. And, and, and so today, we, we're on week number three of that, and you're going to be able to put a piece in the puzzle of the role that Joseph played in getting the nation of Israel into Egypt, where eventually God would deliver them. And that, and that deliverance story would become a reflection of what God was eventually going to do through Jesus Christ. So you're going to be able to put a, a, a giant part of the story together. The part of the story that you're going to put together is something that I call the upper story. And in every one of these messages, I'm hopeful that you'll, 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 you'll have an upper story and a lower story that will connect with you. So the upper story is the big picture. It, it's, it's, it's the role that each character of Scripture played as we go through their stories this year. That's the upper story. It's the grand narrative. But in every individual story that we're going to tell... You're also going to get the lower story, and the lower story is how the individual character that we study affects you personally. And today, I think that what you're going to see in Joseph's story, what I hope you get out of this, is you're going to see a man who spent many years in prison, like Nelson Mandela, a man who came out of a prison cell and chose not to enact his, his newly found power upon his enemies. In fact, he chose the route of forgiveness, he chose the, the route of reconciliation, and he forgave the people who came against him. And, and my hope today is that in the lower story, that you would be convicted today, that the Holy Spirit would speak to you today and show you that you have got to learn how to extend forgiveness. You've got to choose the route of forgiveness rather than the route of bitterness toward the people who have harmed you. Because we all have people who have harmed us in our lives, don't we? And so that's what I hope you're going to get out of the lower story. So guys, I'm going to take you through Joseph's story today. It is an amazing and powerful piece of the Bible. It takes up about the, the last portion of Genesis, about the last quarter of the book of Genesis is all dedicated to Joseph's amazing story. So you can imagine the challenge of trying to summarize about 12 chapters of the Bible in about 20 minutes. So here we go. You okay? You all with me? Come on, that's not nearly enough energy. You've got to put your hands together. Come on, Pastor, we're with you, okay? We're going to do this. Twelve chapters in about 20 minutes. All right, we're going to get to hear Joseph's story. It's a, 
The total message isn't 20 minutes. I got more to tell you after the 12 chapters. Come on now. Here we go. All right. This is how Joseph's story goes. It says, this is the account of Jacob's family line. So Joseph was a descendant of Jacob, who Pastor Corey taught us about last weekend. It says, Joseph was a young man of 17. He was tending flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Israel, Israel is the other name for his father, Jacob. So Jacob has two names in the Bible. He's called Jacob. He gets renamed Israel after he wrestles with God. Pastor Corey taught about that last weekend. Okay, so that's where the nation of Israel comes from. You all are putting the pieces together here. All right. Now, Israel, his father, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he had made an ornate robe for him. So his father is showing favoritism to him. Now, here's what happened. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and they could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. So here's where we pick up the story. We first get introduced to Joseph when he's 17 years old. And Joseph, what we find out very quickly, is hated by his family. And so maybe you can resonate. If you've ever been through like really significant family brokenness, a real serious breakdown in, in your family system, maybe you can relate to Joseph's story in some way. So he's hated by his brothers. Now he's hated for two reasons. One of those reasons is not his fault at all, and one of those reasons he kind of contributed to. So the one that's not his fault is that his father did not do a very good job of raising his family. That's not his fault. You know, last weekend, Pastor Corey taught us that God is faithful to, to, to flawed people. You guys remember that message? Like we saw the faithfulness of God to Abraham and Jacob, even though they were incredibly flawed characters. Jacob is a very, very flawed character in the Bible. And yet God uses him to birth a nation. So, so, so the Bible does not cover up the flaws and the sins of the characters that we read about. And so, and so he, and here's, here's Jacob. Like, Jacob messed up his family. So he married four women. That'll mess your family up, right? So some of the sons are born to Zilpah. Some are born to Bilhah. Some are, you know, born to Rachel and Leah. He's, he, she's got all these wives in his life. And, and now, and now he, he, he favors the sons of the wife he loves the most. So he doesn't love all the wives equally. He doesn't love all the sons equally. So J Jacob messes up his family dynamic. He really does. And his brothers hate, Joseph's brothers hate him because of Jacob's overwhelming love for him. It was jealousy. Now, the second reason they hated him, and this is the one that, jo that Joseph kind of contributed to, is that Joseph started being given dreams by God. So, so several times when he was 17 years old, God showed up in a dream and gave him this like symbolic dreams that showed him that someday Joseph's brothers and his father were going to bow down to him. And Joseph, because he is old and wise and mature at 17 years old, goes out and runs his mouth to everybody around him about that. Tells everybody around him the dreams that God is giving him and how someday they're all going to bow down to him. And so these brothers just despised him on an intense, intense level because of this. 
And so what happens is one day in chapter 37 of Genesis, the brothers are off tending the flocks. Joseph comes to find them in a place called Dothan. And when he comes to find them, this is what happens with the brothers. Chapter 37 of verse 17 says this. So Joseph went after his brothers and he found them near Dothan. But they saw him in a distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. That's a messed up family, guys. They plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of these cisterns. And let's say that a ferocious animal devoured him. And then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So they see their brother walking along the ridgeline toward them and make the decision to murder him. Now you think you've had a bad family Thanksgiving <laughs> or bad family Christmas. This is a bad family moment. So Joseph comes over, and, and when he comes over, what they do is they attack him. They tear the robe off of him that his father has given him. They throw him into a pit. They leave him in the pit, and then they start to try to determine what's the method that we're going to use to end our brother's life. This is a total mess. And praise God that God had a plan because God brought along one of the brothers who wasn't there, a brother by the name of Reuben. Reuben gets involved with the other brothers and says, hey, whoa, whoa, stop, 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 stop. This is too evil. Don't kill your brother. Right then, Reuben looks up and sees coming across that same ridgeline a group of traders. It was a group of people from that they called the Midianites who were on their way to Egypt. And so God gave a provision to spare Joseph's life. Reuben gets the idea, hey, let's do the second most evil thing we could do to Joseph. Let's just sell him into slavery so that, that way we don't have to have his blood on our hands. So the Midianite traders come by. The brothers pull Joseph up out of the cistern and they sell him off like a slave. And just like that, Joseph is out of the picture. They take his, his uh, robe, they, they pour animal blood on it, they tear it up, they take it back to Jacob and say he got, torn out, he got torn up by a ferocious animal. And Jacob ends up grieving for many, many days for his most beloved son, who he believes he has now lost. He's not going to find out until many, many years later that he never did lose Joseph, that God was actually with him through this entire story. And so there's a redemptive end to all this. But for Joseph, it's hard because Joseph now goes into essentially slavery, and what's going to happen, he's, he's going to lose the next 13 years of his life. So 13 years in the prime of his life are going to tick by, and he's going to lose everything while it happens. So here's what happens with the Midianites. Meanwhile, the Midianites, they made it to Egypt. They sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So the Midianites get to Egypt. They realize that they can profit off of this Hebrew slave. You know, they bought him from some price. They could sell him for more. So they go to Egypt and they sell him off to a very high Egyptian official named Potiphar. And Joseph now finds himself in Potiphar's household. We are not clear in the Bible how much time he spent in Potiphar's household and how much time he spent in his next location, which he'll be to in a minute, which is a prison cell. But we do know that the combined length of time is 13 years. So he loses the prime of his life because of what happens to him. So now he's in Potiphar's household, and he's a slave to Potiphar. Potiphar probably had many, many attendants, many uh, people who were hired onto his staff, probably had other slaves besides Joseph. And, and so Potiphar's a powerful dude, but Potiphar pretty quickly recognizes that something special is happening with this Hebrew slave. 
And so he, he gives them authority. Chapter 39 says this. It says that the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and he became his attendant. And Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. Now, I love this statement. The Lord was with Joseph. That statement shows up multiple times throughout the journey that Joseph goes on. So what's cool about a story like this is, is even though the, the, the main point of the story isn't that the Lord was with Joseph, it's one of those sub-points that we get to pick up from Joseph's story that I think helps us in the moment when we are going through something really hard in our lives to be able to see Joseph's story and to see that the scriptures keep saying the Lord was with Joseph. Even when Joseph had the worst circumstances in his life, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord is with you if you know Jesus, his son. The Lord is with you in the hardest, most difficult moments of your life. And he was with Joseph. And so because God's hand was on his life, apparently Joseph had a strong administrative skill and, 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 and it was able to be used in Potiphar's household. And, and so Joseph just led on, a, on an amazing, significant level. And, and so Potiphar put everything under his care. Well, here's how the story goes. And some of you know this part of the story, and some of you are going to be surprised that this kind of stuff is in the Bible. Potiphar's wife takes notice of this young, strapping, you know, six-pack, hulking, beautiful man named Joseph. She, she's drawn to him. And so what begins to happen in Genesis 39 is that Potiphar's wife begins to aggressively, aggressively pursue Joseph and tries when Potiphar is away to get Joseph into bed with her. Some of you may be a little surprised to know that that kind of stuff shows up in the Bible, and it does. And so she chases after Joseph. In fact, she pursues him every single day. And, and what's just unbelievable about the story is that Joseph maintained his integrity and, and kept saying to her, listen, Potiphar has given me everything under his care, like everything that he owns, I have access to and I get to lead. You're the one thing he's restricted from me. I cannot do this. This would be so wicked and evil. I can't, I can't go to bed with you. And she pursues him day after day after day. Now, guys, I think in a story like this, again, there's, there's, there's the major, major points of the story, and you're going to be able to put together the upper story today, but then there's these, these, these sub-points that come out of it. And I want to just linger for just a second on a sub-point that I want you to hear here. You know, I think, here's my theory. We're going to see later in this story that Joseph has this unbelievable calling on his life that he doesn't know yet, and God's going to raise him up to do amazing things. I have a theory that if Joseph had said yes to Potiphar's wife, we don't know for sure, but this is my theory. If he'd said yes to Potiphar's wife, I'm not sure we ever would have heard about him in the Bible. I seriously wonder if he would have sacrificed everything God wanted to do if he had taken Potiphar's wife. And I wonder how often in our lives we sacrifice the very good things that God wants to do the grand callings that he has on our lives. I wonder how often we, even as Jesus-following people, exchange God's calling 
for temporary sexual pleasure. Now, I don't know what God's going to do with that for you today, and I'm not here to heap shame on you. That's not my goal at all, but I want you to dwell on that for a second and, and, and just consider the next time that sexual temptation is in front of you to say, is it possible that I could be exchanging in this moment something that God wants to bring later for something that's very, very temporary? Don't do that. And if you've done that in the past, repent of it and let God restore you so that you don't do it again in the future, so that God can move you forward to where you want to go. God had a grand calling on Joseph's life, and Joseph could have exchanged it, and he chose not to. And so because he keeps refusing Potiphar's wife's advances, one day she absolutely comes after him. He refuses her again, and this time she gets so mad and humiliated by him that she now accuses him of rape. So Potiphar comes back. She grabs her husband and says, that Hebrew slave tried to rape me. Potiphar now freaks out as a husband should in a moment like that. And, and what Potiphar does is he now does something abusive to Joseph. Verse 20 of the same chapter says this, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison in the place where the king's prisoners were confined. So now he's in prison. Totally unjustly, totally unfairly he's in prison. But guess what we find again? Here's what we discover again. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. God just kept being with Joseph. The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and he granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and he gave him success in whatever he did. Isn't that incredible? Joseph is now in a prison cell. Scholars debate. Um, some people think he was in Potiphar's household for about 10 years, the prison cell for about three. Some think it's the opposite. He was in Potiphar's house for about three, the prison cell for 10. Not totally sure, but now he's in prison. He's absolutely lost his freedom. And, and Joseph had every opportunity to allow now the root of bitterness to take over his life. I mean, everything that's happened to him is wrong. His family turned on him. They sold him into Egypt. Now he's in a prison cell for something he did not do. He, he has every opportunity to just let bitterness totally crush him, totally put chains on him, totally take over his life. But what actually happens in the story is God keeps working in him. God keeps working. And God is actually using these steps that Joseph can't understand. He's using them to get Joseph where he needs to go so that Joseph can be positioned to save many, many, many people. That's what's coming. But Joseph doesn't know that. He's in prison. And he could get bitter. But what God does is God keeps orchestrating steps. He keeps putting pieces together. Remember in the first week of this series, I told you that what we're seeing in the book of Genesis is like the chessboard is getting all set up. God is making a move, and then the devil is making a move, and then God is making a move, and the devil is making a move. We're seeing the chessboard, and God was moving pieces on the chessboard to get Joseph into the right position on the board so that eventually Israel could be in Egypt. He was orchestrating the whole thing. So now what happens in prison are, is, that, is that prisoners who are coming into prison start to have dreams, and Joseph starts to be given the ability to interpret the dreams. One of those prisoners is the cupbearer to Pharaoh. And so the cupbearer has a dream. Joseph interprets it correctly. The cupbearer goes back to Pharaoh's service. Two years go by, and now Pharaoh begins to have dreams. 
Pharaoh has a dream of seven very fat cows that are plump and round, these big luscious cows, and then these seven scrawny, ugly, skinny, terrible-looking cows raise up, and the seven skinny cows go and kill the seven fat cows and devour them. And he's so troubled by this dream, he doesn't know what to do. So he, he, he started asking around, who can interpret my dream? And the cupbearer who is with Pharaoh says, hey, I, I remember when I was in prison that I had a dream and there was this Hebrew slave who was able to interpret it. Why don't you call him up and let's talk to him? And so that's what happens. Joseph gets called up in front of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He hears Pharaoh's dream and now he's able to tell him on the spot exactly what's going on. He said, Pharaoh, here's the deal. The seven fat cows represent seven years of abundance. You're going to have so much food coming in from your crops in the next seven years, you're not going to know what to do with it. Overwhelming amounts of food are going to come in for seven years. But then seven years of famine are coming. So you would be wise, Pharaoh, to take a portion of the food that gets raised in these next seven years and to keep setting it aside so that when the day comes for the famine to hit, that you can be spared and your people can be spared. Pharaoh was so absolutely impressed with Joseph that this is, this is what he does. So, so Pharaoh, he looks to everybody around him. And so, so Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace. And all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to your throne will I be greater than you. He elevates Joseph up to the number two position in Egypt. Do you think Joseph had any idea that that's what God was going to do? In the days that his brothers had him and his sister and they're selling him off to Midianite traders, do you think Joseph had a clue that someday he would be sitting beside Pharaoh and running the, the entire nation for Pharaoh? You think Joseph had any clue in the days that he's, that he's sitting in a prison cell and, and, and nobody seems to take care of his situation? He's unjustly in prison. There's nothing, there's no court system, there's no trial, there's no appeal system to try to appeal his case. You think he had any idea that God was going to raise him up to the number two position in Egypt? I don't think he had a clue. I don't think Nelson Mandela had a clue during 27 years in prison. I don't think he had a clue that God was going to take his story and make him worldwide famous with it and, and, and set that whole story up to position him to become the president of South Africa and to break the system of apartheid. I don't think Nelson Mandela had any clue about that. But God used it for good. Because sometimes God uses really, really, really hard circumstances. Sometimes God uses things that are completely and in every way unfair totally unfair, but he uses them to, to, to put us into a position where we're supposed to be used by his gracious hand for something good. And so Joseph gets elevated to number two and the seven years of, of, of just crazy levels of food come in. And what Joseph does during those seven years is he sets aside a fifth of every crop and just puts it away in storehouses. And so the Egyptians just pack storehouse after storehouse after storehouse after storehouse with food. There is so much food in Egypt, it's ridiculous. But then the seven years of famine come in. And in the seven years of famine, now everybody starts to starve. 
the people of Egypt start to starve. The people of the surrounding nations start to starve. And so Joseph begins to unload the, pharaoh, the storehouses and sell off the grain. So he starts making Pharaoh crazy amounts of money to sell the grain off to people. And for seven years, people keep buying and buying and buying the grain. And now the nations that are surrounding Egypt start to come to Egypt because Egypt is the only place with food, and it is their only possibility of not starving to death during this seven-year period. And so the nations start to come together. Joseph is being used by God to save countless numbers of people from starvation now. That's what he's being used by God. God positioned him for this. And one day, who shows up at his doorstep to try to buy food? Come on, some of you know the story. It's his brother's. His own brothers had been sent by their father to go to Egypt to buy grain. And Joseph sees them. And I don't have enough time to tell you the depth of the story of how that whole interaction went. But here's the bottom line of what you need to know and what you need to understand. Joseph had every opportunity to retaliate in that moment. He is the second most powerful man in Egypt, and at that point, because of the, the starvation, that means at that moment, he's the second most powerful man in the world. And his brothers who sold him into slavery now have to come and buy food. If Joseph wanted to, if Joseph had let the spirit of bitterness take over his life in that prison cell, the spirit of bitterness take over his life in Potiphar's household, Joseph would have retaliated. He might have thrown his own brothers into prison. He might have said, I spent 13 years, now you've got to spend 13 years. Joseph could have done any one of those things. He would have been justified in doing so. But Joseph chose the same path that thousands of years later Nelson Mandela would choose. And he chose the path of forgiveness. And he chose the path of reconciliation. And he becomes restored to his brothers. He moves his father, whose name is now Israel, from the land where he's at and, and the father's whole entire family clan. Now all the wives, all the kids, all the grandkids, all the great-grandkids, everybody now moves into Egypt. And this is how the nation of Israel gets started inside of the nation of Egypt. It's incredible. Now, guys, I, I, I told you that there's an upper and a lower story here. There, 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 there's two pieces to this whole thing. And in the upper story, what I hope you're understanding is, is this narrative. I hope you're, you're seeing like the master part of the puzzle, that God put Joseph into position to get Israel into Egypt so that eventually they could be oppressed and eventually they could be delivered through Moses. This is all a part of God's unfolding plan that will lead to Jesus coming into the world someday. That's the upper part of the story. That's the role that Joseph plays. But in the lower part of the story, I, I want you to, to understand something. I want to give you a principle this morning that I want you to take away and walk away with. And, and it's this. I want you to learn something from Joseph's story. Okay? Forgiveness equals freedom. It equals freedom. Bitterness equals bondage. So choose forgiveness. You get to choose if there's going to be bondage over your life for the rest of your life. You get to choose it. You have the choice in your hands to forgive those who have harmed you or the choice in your hands to, to retaliate against those who have harmed you. This is what the scripture said that Joseph did. Let me just show you chapter 50 and verse 18. It says this, after the father died, the brothers were so afraid of Joseph. His brothers then came. They threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? 
You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. Now that is a free man. That's a man who's experienced freedom in his life. And you've got to understand that you have a choice. You have to decide if you're going to stay in bitterness or if, you're going to, or if you're going to choose the route of freedom. Guys, this Friday night, we have an opportunity that I, I want to share with you. We announced it last week, and I want to announce it again. We have a forgiveness seminar coming up. And um, I want to, uh, if you could put that uh, slide up, guys, so that they could see the QR code. Um, I, want to, I want to give you an opportunity to register. So if you have a cell phone, pull it out right now and, and decide if you want to register for this. Let me explain to you what we're doing. We're partnering with a Christian counseling ministry this fr Friday night to run a seminar. Now, I know Friday night, you've probably got plans. Uh, if you're like me, you just want to lounge and veg out at home, okay, on a Friday night, right? I get it. But here's what I have discovered to be true over, over the years. Many, many people within the body of Christ are completely, completely in bondage, completely in chains. Many people are. And I don't want you to stay that way. I want you to choose the path of forgiveness that will give you freedom. And so this, this seminar that we're having, it's three and a half hours long. It will take your whole Friday night up. It costs $20 because we've got to buy you a workbook and a box meal. But I'm telling you guys, I want you to walk out with freedom. I want you to walk out with the ability to say, I'm not going, I'm not going to stay in bitterness. I'm not going to stay bound up in bondage anymore in my life. I, I'm, going to, I'm going to be set free from whatever it is that that person has done to me. So we're going to send you an email this week, and I'm going to encourage you to come to the seminar and join us and be totally and completely set free. Let me go ahead and pray for you. Lord Jesus, I pray over our church today, and I pray that we would learn these parts of the lower story, these parts of not trading in our calling in Christ for temporary sexual pleasure. These parts about learning to forgive our enemies and not being stuck in total bondage and bitterness. Lord, help us to learn. Help us to know what to do. Jesus, I pray for this forgiveness seminar on Friday night. I pray, God, that it would touch hearts and touch lives and deliver us, God, and pull the chains off of some lives in this church. So, God, do your work. Do your work. Do your work. And everybody stay with your heads bowed, your eyes closed. I want to make an invitation to you. Maybe you're here today and you've never turned your heart to Jesus. And if that's the case, you can walk out of this room today with a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can be forgiven of your sins. Jesus loves you. He died on a cross for you and he wants to save you. And so if you feel ready to turn your heart to Christ, I want to invite you to pray with me right now. Just pray. Lord Jesus, Will you please come into my life? Jesus, I pray that you would set me free. I pray that you would deliver me. I pray that you would forgive me for what I've done wrong. Jesus, I'm turning my heart over to you. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died on the cross. And I believe you rose from the dead. Now, Jesus, please come into my life. Now, keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. I just want to know, if you are praying that prayer, if you're inviting Jesus into your life, if you're inviting him to come in and to save you and to set you free, would you put your hand nice and high in the air? Is anybody inviting him? Thank you. Anybody else? Anybody else? Thank you. Amen. Amen.